Numbers chapter 14. Let's begin in verse 21. Read down to verse 24. But as truly as I live, this is the Lord speaking now, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Again, the words of verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went and his seed shall possess it. When you think of the great tragedies of the Bible, there are a number of them. A number of passages can come to mind. Genesis chapter 3, for example, tells us the story of an incomprehensible tragedy. Adam and Eve falling into sin, carrying the whole human race with them. Oh, we should read that chapter and weep, and weep with astonishment. How could it be? How could it be? I call it an incomprehensible tragedy because we cannot comprehend how man being created very good and having every advantage and enjoying fellowship with God could nevertheless experience such a tragic fall and pledge the whole human race into sin. Genesis chapters 6 and 7 record for us the advancement of sin. So bad did it become that we read in Genesis 6 and verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sort of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Would God diagnose the world in its current state the same way? Hard to think otherwise, isn't it? Sinful man had become so deeply and so constantly rebellious against God that the slate had to be wiped clean, so to speak, and the slate was wiped clean by a universal flood that covered the earth. Oh, don't ever think of the story of Noah's Ark as some cute little animal story. I know that's one of the things that Gauls Ken Ham answers in Genesis. I've heard him mention that many, many times. He, he despises all of these uh, book covers and uh, paintings and posters, whatnot, where you just have a picture of a little boat, you know, and the head of a giraffe poking out the window, something like that. He regards that to be uh, utterly blasphemous, and I understand why. 
Don't ever think of Noah's Ark that way. It's a tragic story. It's the story of judgment. It's the story of God's wrath. And it serves as a constant reminder to us down to this very hour that the judgment of God is something that is very real. It's not something that's theoretical that we look at as being way out there somewhere, maybe at the end of time. No, God has vindicated himself time and again and shown us beyond all doubt that he is the judge of the earth. And the fact that judgment has come is a sure indication that judgment will come. It's a tragic story. And now to this category of tragic stories in the Bible, there comes Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. These chapters, too, reveal to us another kind of tragedy that's hard to grasp. It's the tragedy of Kadesh Barnea. That's the place where the Israelites were at the time that Moses sent forth these uh, spies, they're called, to search out the land. Twelve men have been chosen by Moses to search out the land of Canaan. This was the land that the Israelites were to inherit. And the men that were sent forth were not just any men. They were the leaders among the people. Send thou men, the Lord says to Moses in chapter 13 and verse 2, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel, Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. The word ruler in that verse is in other places translated by the word prince or captain or chief, and it means a leader. So these men, these 12 men that were sent forth, were not just randomly chosen men, nor were they simply volunteers. They were the leaders in each tribe. They were the ones that were in positions to have the greatest influence over the tribes that they represented. And when they went forth and explored the promised land, they brought back a good report as to the quality of the land. It was indeed a land that flowed with milk and honey, to use their expression, I can still see in my mind's eye a picture from a children's Bible of two men bearing a large branch on their shoulders and from that branch a very large cluster of grapes. It was a sampling of the fruitfulness of that land. Unfortunately and tragically, ten of the twelve spies also expressed their opinion that it would be impossible for the Israelites to possess this land. In chapter 13, beginning in verse 27, we read, And they told him, that is, the ten, speaking to Moses, they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it, Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. 
Well, this report was followed by what became a debate. A debate between 10 of the 12 spies with Caleb and Joshua. And so we read, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 13, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the man that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight." They're so big, they're so strong, we're so little, we're so weak, this is impossible, it can't be done. That was basically the report of uh, the supermajority, if you will. And as we come into the 14th chapter of Numbers then, we learn an important lesson in theology. We learn that even though the Lord is very patient and long-suffering, There is a limit to his patience. The Israelites have succeeded in crossing the line of the Lord's patience. Forty years would be enough time for that generation to die in the wilderness. Forty years they were sentenced to, to wander in that wilderness. And it would be the next generation, the Joshua generation, if you will, that would enter the land of Canaan to conquer and possess it. You know, whenever I think of what we would call the Joshua generation, it makes me cry to the Lord, Lord, please make this upcoming generation that generation. I feel that when it comes to my own generation, we've done little more than wander in the wilderness. Oh, that our children could do so much better, that their faith would be so much stronger that they would be enabled in the Lord's grace to do uh, such great exploits for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his kingdom. So that was the sentence. There were, however, two notable exceptions to that generation that lacked the faith and the courage to conquer Canaan. There was Caleb and there was Joshua. So we read beginning in verse 22, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, have now tempted me these ten times. And can I pause in that verse just long enough to point out that their unbelief was inexcusable. That's basically what the Lord is saying to them here. With everything you've seen, with everything you've experienced, your unbelief is inexcusable. They have not hearkened to my voice. Verse 23, Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. So Caleb is singled out in verse 24. 
We know also that Joshua was also included and that he would be the one to lead that generation into the promised land. I'm interested this morning, therefore, in what verse 24 has to say about Caleb. We're told that he had another spirit with him and that he followed the Lord fully. Oh, the need of our day is for Christians that will follow the Lord fully. And I fear that such Christians are as rare today as they were rare in the days of Moses and Caleb and Joshua. It's much more common to find those that will follow the Lord half-heartedly, who I'm afraid are governed as much by the spirit of the world as they are by the spirit of the Lord. So this is what I want to focus on this morning. And by focusing on this virtue that the Lord himself commends Caleb for, I hope that there will be many, even in our little church family here this morning, that will take up the challenge of following the Lord fully. So that's my theme this morning then, following the Lord fully. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. And in analyzing these words in verse 24, what I want to do this morning is simply this. I want to raise three questions and then provide the answer to those questions. First question, what does it mean to follow the Lord fully? What does that mean? And in answering this question, let's look at it negatively and then positively. And in looking at the question negatively, we'll consider what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you'll follow the Lord in such a way as to attain uh, sinless perfection. There are some in the broad range of Christianity that believe such a thing is possible. Um, we do not. The Bible does not teach that. So long as we are in this world, there will always be a battle against sin. We will not attain sinless perfection in this life. So what then does it mean to follow the Lord fully? It doesn't mean to be sinlessly perfect. King David comes to mind as a ready example of this. Here was a man, I think we could say, did follow God with all of his heart. A man who followed God fully. God himself refers to David as a man after his own heart. And so if God is giving that kind of commendation about David, I think it stands to reason that David then can be viewed as a standing example of one who followed the Lord fully. And when you read the narration of David, and especially when you consider how half the Psalms in the Old Testament were written by David, then you can certainly see why he would be called a man after God's own heart. Oh, when you look at some of the expressions in the Psalms that uh, reveal his devotion and his love for the Lord, uh, you can't come to any other conclusion but that this is a man who did follow the Lord fully. 
And yet when you read the narration of David, you soon realize that he was anything but perfect. He had his ups and his downs, spiritually speaking. He certainly stands out as a hero, doesn't he, when he confronts as a young man and conquers the Philistine giant Goliath. And one of the reasons he was able to slay the giant was because he could see with the eye of faith how much more powerful God was than any mortal man. And that story further points out that David was jealous for the honor of his God, and he deeply resented the way that giant blasphemed God. And yet before the book of 1 Samuel is done, you find David caving into fear. You find him, in a sense, I suppose, like 10 of the 12 spies. He's totally convinced that even though God delivered him time and again from the hand of King Saul, that it was nevertheless only a matter of time before Saul would succeed in hunting him down and killing him. And so we read in 1 Samuel 27 and verse 1, and you could include this verse in the tragic verses that I was mentioning earlier. Here's David's reasoning. We read in that verse, And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. You look at a text like that, you look at David's words in that verse, and one can hardly believe that this is the same David that as a young man took on and conquered the giant Philistine. And when David eventually becomes king, you find him committing terrible sins. He steals another man's wife and conspires to have her husband murdered on the battlefield. And at the very end of David's life, the last episode in his life records how his pride got the best of him. And he had the people numbered. Well, why then? You might ask, and it would be a legitimate question, why then is a man like David given the title, a man after God's own heart? How is it that such a designation as that is assigned to him? Is he really an example of one who followed God fully? And the answer is yes, definitely. He was a man who followed God fully. And the thing in David's life that marks him above everything else was his consistency in seeking the Lord or returning to the Lord after he had sinned. He always returned. When he fled to the land of the Philistines, we read that in 1 Samuel 27, he came to the conclusion, the only way I can... uh, have my life spared is to flee to the land of the Philistines. And after he had spent some 18 months in their presence and basically lived the life of a hypocrite for a season, he eventually encouraged himself in the Lord his God. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 29 and verse 6. I have preached from that text 
And you might remember the surrounding of that text. David had lost everything. David and his men, they were about to join up with the Philistine army. They were about to square off against the Israelites. The Philistine princes thought the better of it. They sent David and his men home. And upon reaching home, they discover the city that had been given to them had been burned to the ground. Their wives and their children, their possessions had all been taken. Basically, they had lost everything. And David's followers were so angry with him that they're ready to stone him. And it is in that particular setting that we read in 1 Samuel 29 and verse 6 that David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Like I say, I have preached from that text and I've made it a point of emphasis from that story that there's, <coughs> there's no such thing as a Christian going so far out of bounds, so to speak, that there's no way back to Christ. David came to the end of himself, and then he came to himself, and he encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And before that narrative ends, David and his men have recaptured everything, everything that was lost. And when he was confronted for his sin of taking another man's wife, he owned his sin, you remember that? The prophet Nathan, I believe it is, comes into his presence, tells a parable of a lamb, one man stealing another man's lamb. The prophet points to David, says to him, Thou art the man. David confessed his sin, owned his sin, repented of his sin. That's the mark of a man who follows God fully, you know. He doesn't obtain sinless perfection. Mind you, though, he strives to. He wishes he could. He endeavors to do so. He loves God's law because he sees God's law as being true and right and spiritual. He takes seriously the command to be holy as God himself is holy. But he doesn't deceive himself into thinking he's actually arrived while he's in this world. So we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Two verses later, 1 John 1 and verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we don't deceive ourselves on the matter of sin, nor do we make God a liar by suggesting that we have not sinned, it's the familiar verse that's in between those two verses that the man who follows God fully knows and practices. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the man who follows God fully, you could argue, is a man who lives by the rule of the gospel of Jesus Christ. David knew the gospel. Indeed, Paul himself draws from David in order to explain the gospel and especially to explain the doctrine of justification by faith. Romans chapter 4 and verse 6, and this is Paul quoting David, 
from Psalm 32, I believe it is. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. I think the author of the 119th Psalm demonstrates what it means to follow God fully. Some take David to be the author of that psalm. That's not something we could say with certainty. But some take David to be the author. Whether or not David was the author, we don't know for sure. But whoever the author was, he shows what it means to follow God fully. There is in that psalm, you see, the recognition of sin. The very last verse of the psalm, Psalm 119. Interestingly enough, that last verse shows the psalmist's recognition of his own sin. I have gone astray like a lost sheep, he says. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. And throughout that psalm, the psalmist is resolved to follow God's ways in accordance with his word. And he has an affection for God's law. He loves the law of God. But he also shows his awareness of his dependency on God, and he shows an awareness that he is anything but perfect. So this is the meaning, then, of following God fully. You take to heart and you strive to live up to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And we know from Christ's explanation in the Gospels that that's the essence of the law. That's the essence of law obedience, loving God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the man who would follow God fully takes that to heart and he strives for it. So I trust we have a little bit of an idea then about what it means to follow God fully, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Could we think next for a moment on the question, what does it take to follow God fully? We see a little bit of what it means. Second point of analysis here is the question, what does it take? God himself, you could say, gives us the answer and what he says about Caleb in the words of our text. Notice again the words of Numbers 14, verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, hath followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now, I don't believe in this instance that the word spirit in our text is making reference to the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting to note that in, well, in, in every English translation that I consulted, most of the well-known ones, you don't find the word spirit capitalized in any of them. I don't know that there are any. I suppose if you look long enough, you can find some commentator that might suggest this is the Holy Spirit. And I'm not about to deny the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Caleb 
It's only to say that in the words of the text, the word spirit, I believe, is referring to Caleb's attitude and demeanor. He has a different attitude. He has a different outlook. He has a different uh, uh, demeanor toward everything, a different spirit. And this attitude and demeanor is contrasted to the attitude of the other ten spies. This is why we read another spirit with him. You see the contrast in that, that word, another? The others had a kind of spirit. Caleb had another kind, a different kind. Now, what kind of spirit would you say had dominated the others, the ten of the twelve? I think you could say, obviously, that it was the spirit of fear, the fear of man. Caleb and Joshua appealed to them not to be dominated by this spirit of fear. Look back at chapter 14, verses 8 and 9 where Joshua and Caleb, they're kind of speaking together here. We don't know who said what particularly, but they're both uh, speaking together here. And we read in verse 8, If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. And then comes their exhortation to the other ten, Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us, for their defenses departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Becomes quite apparent then, doesn't it, what kind of fear gripped the ten of the twelve. It was the spirit of fear, the fear of man. And if ever there was an instance to prove the truth of Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, which tells us the fear of man bringeth a snare, but who shall putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Well, Numbers 14 gives us that instance, doesn't it? The fear of man bringing a snare. Just as in the case of David, where he could see God clearly with the eye of faith, while all the other Israelites could only see a ten-foot-tall armored giant. So now in Numbers 14, Caleb and Joshua could see God with the eye of faith. They had, after all, already seen what God did to the Egyptians when he unleashed his plagues on them. And they had seen how God opened the way through the Red Sea for the Israelites to escape the Egyptian army when it was bearing down on them, and how God brought that same Red Sea to collapse upon the Egyptian army when they were in pursuit of them. And they had heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai, and they saw the mountain shake when God gave the Ten Commandments. So their fear of God was greater than their fear of man, so much so that Caleb would say that these giants in the promised land would be bread for them. In other words, we can gobble them up militarily. The other ten spies were blinded to who God was. And my, how short their memories were. 
They had evidently had forgotten the Red Sea, had forgotten Mount Sinai, had forgotten the plagues in Egypt, had forgotten how they'd been provided for and protected. All they could see now is what was immediately in front of them by the eye of the flesh. They could see fortified cities with very high walls, and they could see giants that dwelt in the land. They were governed by sight and not by faith. It seems, doesn't it, that in our day, there are many Christians that forget who God is, what God has done, what God can do. All they see are the disheartening news reports that tell of the ways that the ungodly government rulers and large and powerful corporations rule the world and are too strong to conquer unless we all manage to rally behind some political candidate. These are the ones who, out of fear, can do little more than make sure they're stocked up on ammunition, that their homes are secured with numerous deadlock uh, bolts, and that the security system in their homes works. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not now preaching against the Second Amendment, okay? That allows us to own guns, and I'm not against security systems for our homes. My home has one. This church has one. But what I am suggesting is that if your heart is ruled by the fear of man rather than the fear of God, then you will in all likelihood align yourselves with the ten spies that saw the giants and the walled cities rather than with Caleb and Joshua who feared the Lord more than they feared man. Oh, that God would grant to us all this morning what is called in our text another spirit, a different spirit, one that can see the spiritual realities of the universe more clearly than they see with the eye of flesh. If you can only see with the eye of flesh, then this will be a very frightening world for you. But if you have another spirit, a different spirit, one that enables you to see with the eye of faith the greatness of your God and your Savior, then your courage won't fail you, and you might even see opportunities in front of you, rather than seeing the mountains of the world's wickedness. Caleb and Joshua saw that, didn't they? This is an opportunity. God told us to go in. God is able. This is our opportunity to go and do exploits and to conquer the promised land. What does it take then to follow God fully? We have to know exactly what it means and what it doesn't mean. And we have to have another and a different spirit in us. I might add here that we have to be willing to be part of a small minority this was a small minority after all, wasn't it? Two out of the ten who had this different spirit. Oh, may God grant to us this different spirit. This is what it takes to follow God fully. Simply put, we have to tend to our faith 
by keeping communion with God through his word and through prayer so that our faith in him grows stronger and not weaker in this present evil world. Let me call your attention to one last question that I'll just touch on and mention briefly on the matter of following God fully, and it is this. What should motivate us to follow the Lord fully? What should motivate us to do that? To follow him fully, to be part of the small minority rather than the majority that was governed by the fear of man. Well, could I suggest to you, first of all, that it certainly will bode much better for your children to follow the Lord fully. Again, the words of our text, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Caleb and his seed, Caleb and his children, they would be the possessors of the land. It would bode far better for their children because Caleb and Joshua were following the Lord fully. Bodes better for your children. Oh, our children know how to read us. Our children can see our inconsistencies and our imperfections. And that's why it becomes very important before your children to live by the rule of the gospel. Son, daughter, I'm not perfect, but I can tell you this. As I gain knowledge of my sin, I know what to do with it. I don't deny it. I don't blame it on someone else. I take it to the Lord. I confess it. I plead the blood of Christ over it. And I look to the Lord to give me grace and strength and wisdom to overcome it. Following the Lord fully through the rule of the gospel. Our children need to see that in us. The temptation is to set ourselves up as some kind of a, a, a perfect authoritarians. And uh, it doesn't work. Our children are sharper than that. They can see through that. So it bodes well for our children if we follow the Lord fully. And we are certainly equipped, I would say, to enjoy the Lord more when we're following him fully. Usually, whenever I'm in Numbers chapter 14, and, and today will be no exception to this, I love to focus on verse 8. This is the verse I have highlighted in this chapter. This is in that debate. Remember I said after the report, there followed a debate between the minority and the supermajority. And look what is said in verse 8. These are now the words of Caleb and Joshua. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us. It sounds, doesn't it, that Joshua and Caleb had a fair amount of confidence that the Lord delighted in his people. That is very often where the battle line is drawn. The devil is going to come to you. He's going to say to you, why would the Lord delight in you? I mean, let's be honest here. Don't you commit sin? Don't you fall short? Uh, has the Lord really gotten from you what he's invested in you? 
by his son shedding his blood for you. Oh, it's not hard to build a case against ourselves to say the Lord couldn't possibly delight in us, and yet it is something that we can and should affirm. Yes, the Lord does delight in me and in you. And the reason is very simple, not because of what he sees intrinsically in me, but because of what he sees in his Son and I and you are joined to his son. He delights in me because he delights in his son. And if I'm looking away to Christ and not looking to myself, then yeah, I can say, the Lord delights in me. You know what? That's a better realm to live in than to live in the spirit of fear, the fear of man. I want to live in the strength of the joy of salvation. And part of the benefit of the joy of salvation is my being able to confess and believe, yes, the Lord does delight in me. I'm following him fully. Oh, I haven't attained perfection, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I can at least claim this much consistency in my life I go to Christ with my sin. Every time I stumble and fall short, every time I fail to measure up, which is every day, by the way, I go to Christ. I plead his blood. I thank him for his merit. I rejoice that his righteousness is imputed to me. And because that righteousness is Christ's perfect righteousness, I am able to count it to be so that the Lord delights in me. And that's what gives me the confidence to face the world and to face whatever obstacles the Lord uh, sees fit to bring our way. That, that really is a primary difference, as I see it here, between Caleb and Joshua and the other ten. The other ten, I don't think they thought very much that the Lord delighted in them. All they could see was what the carnal eye could see. And they failed to see that there was a purpose beyond that, a purpose in the gospel. So it bodes well for our children if we follow the Lord fully. We're equipped to enjoy the Lord more when we follow him fully. And I could say, and this I'll say simply in closing, we are enabled to rise above the world when we follow the Lord fully. We're not oblivious to the dangers around us. I dare say Joshua and Caleb also knew that those cities were fortified and that there were giants in the land and that this was, naturally speaking, an intimidating situation. But by their faith, because they could see in some measure the gospel of Christ and the fact that the Lord delighted in them they were enabled to rise above the world and not to be dragged into the fear of man. Oh, how I hope and pray this morning that we won't be governed by the fear of man. There is much in this world that is frightening and scary. Also sorts of conspiracies that float around, some of which are probably true, many of which are probably not many of which we probably don't even know. Uh, but it can be 
a very scary world, especially when you only see with the eye of the flesh. May God deliver us and help us to have, as Caleb had, another spirit that enables us to fear God above the fear of man. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is true, that he is real, that he reigns at the right hand of God, that he's building his church, that he's not the least bit fretful about the affairs in this world. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt help us to heed the word of the psalmist who tells us to fret not, especially when we see the wicked things in this world. But may we instead keep our hearts and minds focused on him whom to know is life everlasting, knowing as we do that it is our Savior who rules and reigns and that it is his cause that is destined to prevail in the end. So, Lord, deliver us from the fear of man which bringeth a snare. And may we manifest in our attitudes and demeanors, in our actions and in our words, another spirit which shows and demonstrates the fear of God and awesome reverence toward our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.